Any impressions done on the show, however bad they may be, are meant for fun. Please enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to Today in Space. The date for this week is July 23rd, 2015. The summer is going by way too fast now. Um, I can't believe it's the end of July. Next is going to be August. And, whoo, man, there's still so much to do. (laughs) There's still so much to do in the summer of Alex. (laughs) There's so many things I have to do. I don't have the money for it. But that's... My problem, not yours. <laughs> I hope everybody has had a great week. Um, you know, this week we're doing a supplemental episode. So for any new listeners, supplemental episode is, you know, it takes it's a little more personal. And for this one, it could be. So <laughs> before my brain goes any faster than my mouth can actually speak the words, let me actually explain it. <laughs> the supplemental episode is something that's, um, it could be a little personal. It's more like philosophical, kind of gives you my ideas, my opinions on things, but we're still going to bring you the science news. And it's just another way to bring it to you in a more entertaining way. So today's episode, we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things. But to start, this week has been all about Pluto, which has been awesome. I, I can tell when the space news has made it out to a lot of people because it's just fantastic. I, you know, uh, I become, well, I am a lot of people's personal space activist. <laughs> so, you know, I've got kind of the up to date, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So that's how I knew this last week has been really, really popular just for space in general is because, uh, a lot of people have been coming up and talking. So, uh, big weeks for space. And I love it. I love doing it. That's part of the reason I wanted to do the show because I was already doing that. I was already, um, people would come up to me and ask, and that's when I knew things were kind of, you know, in, in the, the circle. <laughs> but, uh, there's usually a lot of different questions. Uh, but each time there's always just a few that stick out like, uh, the top five, if you will. I don't think there were five this time, maybe three, but whatever. Uh, you know what I mean? There's a few questions or topics that come up more than any other ones. So this time, there were three. There were three. Uh, One is, you know, Pluto is awesome, beautiful, incredible, or my favorite was not what I expected. Uh, So that one goes without saying. I mean, anyone who's seen the pictures uh, can, can attest to it. I mean, it's amazing to see a brand new planet for the first time. I mean, it's all new. Everything we're learning is all new. We might even get some things wrong while we're trying to figure it out. But for the first time, we actually have stuff on this. So it's a really, really interesting time. And I've talked to a lot of people about it. And it's awesome. It's awesome. Um, the other question <laughs> that I've also gotten, this, this kind of topic is, <laughs> did we send people there? Which is, of course, a no. Uh, why don't we send people there? <laughs> And I miss the shuttle program, which I agree, I do too. Uh, but the reality is the shuttle program is gone. Um, it's not coming back. Uh, the only reason the shuttle program would come back is out of desperation. But even now, you know, they're not operational. So it would take a very long time because you, you need to get those teams back that worked, that knew uh, the shuttle program in and out. You know, you're not going to just pick that back up. Um, and it's definitely going to be the core. <laughs> Why aren't we sending people into space? That's, that's today's episode. But, but number three this week was uh, just any topic that had something to do with what it would be like to live in space. And I agree with these. I, <laughs> I think it's funny that going to another world, seeing a planet for the first time, has really made people start thinking. And that my friends, is the first step. 
If space travel was going to get on a roll here, and really pick up speed and become something popular, this type of thing will get going. And congratulations to the New Horizons team and NASA for promoting it with class, having great content available for the internet, and keeping the websites up with the millions of people that accessed the images and read all the articles, and the videos, and all that stuff. Now, as long as they can keep delivering content like that, and people like myself and so many others online keep making science interesting, then we could actually go into the stars. I mean, settle on another planet. We could have every job on Earth also exist when we start living, living in space, and uh, like it's traveling uh, on a train or taking a plane ride. We could have space plumbers, space lawyers, space mechanics, although probably spacecraft mechanics, space electricians, space comedians, space therapists. I can keep going, but you get the point. I'm in this for the long haul. So let's start talking about it, working on it, and actually trying. That's all I want, for us to actually try it. If we can't figure it out, all right, we're at the whim of an asteroid hitting us. We won't live on another planet. I'll never get the sip out of my cup of coffee to look down at the Earth, thanks to Richard Branson and Virgin Galactic. Oh, wait. He's actually working on it. All right, friends. This is the supplemental episode about humans and outer space living. Here we go. All right. So, moving into European Space Agency news, there has been a change of leadership at that agency. And in just the last two weeks, the new head of the ESA, Johann Dietrich Werner, or Werner, depending on how you'd like to say it, uh, has just taken charge of the agency. What did Johan just become in charge of? Well, there's the 4.4 billion euro annual budget. He was, up until recently, the former chair of the German Space Agency, which, as I found out, is the workhorse for all things ESA. He's also in charge of Europe's new satellites for communication, navigation, weather, and observation. They're astronauts on the International Space Station. And any missions to comets, Mars, Mercury, and Jupiter. I mean, this guy's in a great position. So, when he was interviewed by the BBC about what his plans were for the ESA, he gave this answer. We should look to the future beyond the International Space Station. Okay, good, good, I like that. We should look for a smaller spacecraft in low Earth orbit for microgravity research. Okay, sweet. You know, that's reasonable, and other space agencies have said the same thing. And I propose a moon village on the far side of the moon. Ah, oh, Johan, my man, let's talk about this. A moon village. We're not even talking about a moon colony or a moon habitat. You're talking about trying to make a moon village? A moon village shouldn't just mean some houses, a church, and a town hall. The Moon Village should mean partners from all over the world contributing to this community with robotic and astronaut missions and support communication satellites. Damn! And you want the Moon to be used for science as well as using it as a stepping stone to further human exploration of the solar system? Yes, sir! Okay, but why the dark side of the Moon? The far side of the moon is very interesting because we could have telescopes looking deep into the universe. We could do lunar science on the moon and the international aspect is very special. The Americans are looking to go to Mars very soon and I don't see how we can do that. Before going to Mars, we should test what we could do on Mars on the moon. What else? A giant 3D printer on the moon? Use this technology on something that is four days away from Earth instead of six? That way it'll be easier to do, and a village that close could actually get emergency help in a reasonable amount of time? Sounds good. So it's safe to say that someone who is in a place to push the boundaries of living in space, from science fiction to reality, has made claims to doing just that. We could be seeing the newest lunar manned missions. 
we could learn about so many other microgravity aspects of living in space. We could start creating actual moon living quarters. Test what living in space, actually living in space, is like. What it does to a person's psychology, physiology, etc. Will video games be almost necessary to keep you mentally stimulated for those long periods? I don't know. But we could find out. Let's hope Johann Dietrich Werner and the ESA keep after this vision. And that they figure out a way to make this work. Because I'm down. I'm down. I don't know about how, how about you? So, next on humans and outer, outer space living. Is that what we're calling this? Whatever. Humans in outer space. NASA is planning to select a landing site for humans on Mars. So from the Air and Space Smithsonian, which you'll have the link in the podcast page for this episode, NASA recently issued an invitation to scientists to start the process of planning where astronauts should someday land on Mars. The first landing site slash exploration zone workshop for human missions to the surface of Mars will be held in October at the Lunar and Planetary Institution in Houston, Texas. The purpose of, the works, of this workshop mushmouth, is to identify and discuss possible locations on the Martian surface where a crew could land, live, and work. So let's go to that invitation and see what, what they're actually going to be doing at that workshop. So if you open it up, that invitation includes the purpose of the workshop, to identify and discuss candidate locations where humans could land, live, and work on the Martian surface. There's also some key terms you can get into now. Uh, you know how in all the first-person shooters like Call of Duty or Battlefield, and in real life, of course, it's the only thing I have a reference to, uh, they use the term LZ, or landing zone. Well, they'll be using EZ, or exploration zones. And an EZ is a collection of areas that are within 100 kilometers of the centralized landing site. These close-by regions of interest, or ROIs, will be needed, uh, uh, will need to be relevant for scientific investigations and or develop maturation of the capabilities and resources necessary for sustainable human presence. So, (laughs) to say it another way, (laughs) they will be looking for uh, an area to land. And what they're looking for in those areas is a great exploration zone rating, which I'm guessing the higher the rating, the more areas that they'll have within that 100 kilometers that could be great for science and uh, have room to grow and develop so that the humans that are there can develop their capabilities and stay alive on Mars with, uh, with the best chance. So it's an interesting way to think about where we're going to go on Mars. You know, it's like we have the map, and now we just need to figure out where we're going to start. You know, where's the best place for us to land, survive, and thrive? Because remember, it takes six months to get to Mars with a launch system ready to go. Like, hit of a button, we can go. So the minimum amount of time you need to survive in a case of an emergency, or something breaks, or something goes wrong, is six months. So these exploration zones need to be chosen very carefully. And this is basically, uh, you got to think of it like as a, a one shot. Also, it's a different way to think about the planet, too. You know, from what I've learned so far, Mars is not that forgiving. So there's dust storms and winds that could do serious damage to the equipment. Some areas fluctuate temperatures in extreme ways. But if we can find this easy with a good variety of areas that maximize the potential scientific return versus the risk of human exploration mission, that's good. If we can find an area that can be beneficially, that can beneficially support human life and resources, great. If we can find uh, and develop the concepts and engineering needed for future human missions in these EZs, then we can create, train, and execute a mission that will make a human landing on Mars a reality. You know, and right now, I'm actually, I'm in the middle of reading The Martian. Um, that's coming up soon in theaters, I think in October. Uh, we got uh, Matt Damon 
playing an astronaut. Thank goodness a different astronaut than the one in uh, Interstellar. But that just shows how good of an actor he is. But I, I'm on a tangent. I'm on a tangent. Um, I would definitely recommend reading that. It's pretty good. I mean, it's it's definitely an explicit book. There's a lot of swears in there already in the beginning. Uh, but it's really cool just the... When you're reading it, you get into the mind of, yeah, how, how are you going to survive after they've left you? Yeah, it's very good. So I would definitely recommend starting to read it. You know, and going back to this with the, uh, with the workshop and actually trying to land on Mars, you got to remember this is, this is going to be the very beginning of that conversation. You know, this is where the conversation and the plans start. You know, this workshop will again be used to identify and discuss where humans could land, live, and work on the Martian surface. That exploration zone rating, or the key EZ characteristics, should also be defined for the first time at this workshop. You know, the existing and future robotic spacecrafts uh, will be looking at these potential EZs to get more information so that we can figure out what's there, you know, is it really, what's the weather there? You know, if we can figure out what the weather is in one of these EZs and it's a lot less destructive and, and dis- disruptive as uh, some, most of the other terrain on Mars is, then maybe we can put someone in a place where they're better off. You know, it's not, you know, we're not trying to just send people over like, I, I've been making the joke that, you know, the, the Mars One mission and the people that want to go are like the pilgrims that came to America. Well, we can do that way better now if we get the right data and we figure out, you know, a, a, these EZs are perfect. We can figure out where people, so you're not just landing on Plymouth Rock, you know, and then getting killed by a winter that you never saw coming. You know, you can't prepare, you, you're not ready for that. You know, if, if we can send people there with the best guess that we have, an educated guess, then you know, we could see this really work, you know, and and we could actually get a future mission and land humans on Mars with way better accuracy and just safety than we could now. So I'm a big supporter of this plan. Um, we're going to have to go to Mars. We have to go to Mars at some point. So the fact that now we've got NASA and the European Space Agency, two of the biggest space agencies in the world working on the on two different things too mind you so you know <laughs> that's great you know we can we can develop the long-term solutions uh, of living in space on the moon with the ESA and they're going to set up their future mission to Mars or to another planet or to wherever really they're going to develop that stuff and then Mar- and then NASA with the technology it has today and the partnerships they'll have they're going to try and figure out and design a mission to go there because with their commercial crew program now now this is this is my opinion this is my opinion uh we could really see some some crazy stuff and they can really push they can have a company develop the technology so they don't have to use um their very limited budget that's given to them basically uh on a yearly basis. They can have those companies work on that technology, spend the R&D money, the cost of, and that way we can really make a mission to Mars something that could be possible. It's all possible. We just need to keep digging at this. Keep, I mean, when was the last time anyone who's listened to the show, have you, have you really heard anything that was a serious consideration to send people to Mars. I mean, the fact that this conversation is happening means that it's working, means that people who are getting more involved or talking more about it, you know, it says, so just just to give you a good point of of where, where the people who are going to this workshop are, at the bottom, it says, of this invitation, it says, it is anticipated that funding and support for future calls will be available for teams of scientists and engineers conduct detailed characterizations of the EZs that emerge from this workshop. So, basically, in this workshop, they're going to be developing this, or they're going to be talking about it, and they're saying that we're guessing. The plan is right now that there's funding and support for this to go forward. But basically, you're taking a chance. As a scientist, an engineer, someone who's going into this, it's like, it's like the rest of your job. I mean, I was a victim of that with my R&D job. You know, it's, 
when the money's there, you have work. If the money disappears or it gets taken away or, and I don't mean just disappears out of nowhere, it, it has to go somewhere else, and unfortunately it disappears to you, you lose your job. So, you know, these people have to be passionate, and they want to send people to Mars. But the problem is, you can't just do it for two years and then say, ah, we don't want to do it anymore. So, I mean, there's a reason why it's been stagnant. You know, I would definitely say that's one reason, is that, you know, who's no one can just fund it. You can't just give NASA money, so how are you going to... How are you going to get this done? But now it seems like we can actually really, really work and get this going. So keep an eye on it. I want to get you right away while the, <laughs> while the printer's hot. Uh, and so that way you can understand where we're, where we're starting to go. And so you can keep an eye on it in the future. While we plan to land, live, and work on Mars. All right, and now that we're about halfway through the episode, I just wanted to remind you guys about some of the new stuff that we've got on the website. And the website is todayinspace.net. And if you're still listening to the episode through the website, first of all, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, but I, I do want to make it easier for you. You know, the, when I started this, it was definitely originally supposed to be a podcast. So what is a podcast? It's a great question. And we've created uh, a link for you right on the homepage. There's also a link called podcast exclamation point, question mark, or maybe the other way around, but either way, it's there to help you out, so, you know, if you feel like you're not that good at computers, or you just really don't have the time to figure out what a podcast is, but you'd like to listen to the show a little easier, um, go to that link, and what it'll do is it's a beginner's guide just to get you started, and to get you subscribed on the iPhone, on Android, uh, or pretty much on any computer or laptop. So go check that out, and you can get subscribed. It helps uh, me know how many people are subscribed, because the number's up, so you can spread the word to more people, and it's just easier on you for your listening. You can take it anywhere. You don't have to be in front of the computer or on your phone using those precious data. I know it's expensive. And next, in case you missed it, I don't know how you could if you're a regular listener of the show (laughs) or you follow me online, but Today in Space released their first single, my first single with the help of one John Mitchell, uh, who's been on the show many times for music and for movies. Uh, We both worked and created this song called Pluto the Misunderstood. It's electronic. It'll make you laugh or chuckle. You know, you'll actually learn a little bit about uh, Pluto, and and it's just a a good piece that I'm very, very proud of. And it's available uh, at the Space Store on our website, uh, todayinspace.net slash space store um the links are all on the homepage. it's also available in most digital stores now uh it's all 99 cents uh it's available on amazon mp3 on google play xbox music itunes spotify and it's also on youtube and soundcloud so please uh however you'd like to support us if you like what we're doing if you like the song you can even listen to it beforehand on soundcloud and on youtube Any hits, any plays uh, are greatly appreciated. And if you've got the money and you've got the time to support, we would love a purchase on any one of those uh, platforms. We wanted to make it as easy as possible to access to everybody because we just love the song so much. We just want to make sure everyone has a chance to, to listen to it and have it. So please go out and listen. Thank you. And actually, let's get into what's new from Pluto. Okay, so in Pluto news, uh, we're really, it's all about the Tombow Regio, or the, the heart shape that you see in the, uh, the Pluto pictures. So basically two big things. Enough data, first of all, came back uh, for them to actually create a, a topographical, like an animated flyby of that area, the Tombow Regio, uh, the, the mountain line. So you can actually check that animation out. It'll be in the, the podcast page. Very cool just to just to see what we can do with the data now. I mean, the fact that it came from space, it took four and a half hours to get here. <laughs> we downloaded it, uh, and we can just put it up on YouTube and share it with everybody like that is amazing. Um, then there's also uh, the other picture that came back that shows the uh, second mountain range 
in Pluto's heart, or Tombo Regio, uh, which stands for the Tombo region. Um, I don't know why they took the N off the region, but I don't know, whatever. Um, is that Latin? I don't know. No, no I'm sorry, I'm ignorant. Okay, anyways, talking about things I don't know. <laughs> uh, so the new, uh, newly discovered frozen peaks, um, right now they're estimated to be uh, one half to, a, well, a half to a mile high uh, and about the same height as uh, the Appalachian Mountains in the U.S. Uh, yes, the, uh, and then the Norgay, is it Norg- N-O-R-G-A-Y Montez or the Norgay Mountains uh, were discovered by New Horizons on July 15th. Uh, and they were better estimated as being uh, the height of the Rocky Mountains. And just to make sure, because for my sanity, uh, the newly discovered frozen peaks that are the same height as the Appalachians are not the same as uh, the, the Norgay Montes or the Norgay Mountains. Just realized that sounded confusing. Uh, <laughs> and then there's also a new range that's just west of the region within Pluto's heart uh, called the Sputnik Planum. The Sputnik Plain, and uh, the peaks are about 68 miles northwest of the Norgay Montez, and uh, the newest image uh, shows just how well defined the topography is along that western edge of uh, the Heart region. Um, and a quote from uh, Jeff Moore, leader of the New Horizons Geology, Geophysics, and Imaging team. Uh, there is a pronounced difference in the texture between the younger, frozen plains to the east and the dark, heavily cratered terrain to the west. There's a complex interaction going on between the bright and dark materials that we're still trying to understand. Also, uh, if you have kids, if you're a teacher, or you're just a fanatic about space, uh, there'll be a link up now from Astronomy Now, (laughs) on this podcast page, uh, where there's actually a printout of Pluto that you can actually make a globe um, of Pluto and Karen, I believe. Uh, Let me look at the link real real quick just to make sure. Um, Yep, at the very least, (laughs) it's Pluto. (laughs) And uh, it's, you know, it's obviously not a perfect circle, but it's just cool to, we can have that now. It's been, it hasn't even been two weeks. It hasn't been a month since we've left. Uh, have flown by Pluto that, you know, we already have a printout map <laughs> that you can fold and put on your desk. So if you're really a fanatic and you really want to see Pluto and have it in your hands, um, I would definitely recommend going to this. It's free. It's a nice printable PDF. Really easy to use. And that about does it for Pluto this week. All right. In orbital news or in orbit. This week, on July 20th, we celebrated the anniversary of the landing of Apollo 11 on the moon. You're probably asking, why are you saying it like that? Well, it's because it's a huge day. It's a huge day in not only American history, but in humankind history. You know what I'm saying. It's a, it's a huge day. This is when... We landed people on the moon, and people who were alive back then, during that space race, during that era, still, when I talk to them, you can see that they're going back to a place in their mind where they remember vividly where they were that day when they saw Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. I mean, you wouldn't believe, like, just their face, they they look like they're, they're children back, you know, back in the day. It's crazy. Um, but it was crazy. I mean, I, I have a great grandmother who, when we sent people to the moon and we were sending rockets through the atmosphere of the earth, she was like, you guys are crazy and you're just letting in, you're poking a hole. You're going to let up a whole bunch of stuff in a bunch of evil into the, the world. Now I have no scientific evidence to dispute that. But I would definitely ask her to put hers up. No, I'm kidding. But, like, that was, like, that's how much of a, like, you say that today and people, you know, some people will still deny 
for some f- reason. I, I don't really... They, they never have a real reason, just a bunch of reasons that they heard from somebody else. Um, they don't believe that it actually happened, but they, they can just live in their own imaginary world. Um, with this, back then it was, it was 1969, so we're talking, no, just, I mean, again, I'm going to be the, the, gender, the 2000 generation, the Y2K generation talking about this, but no internet. <laughs> I don't think there was a color TV. If there was, only the, the rich and famous had one. You know, um, and and everyone got to see and hear one. Uh, now I remember. I gotta get the line right. Hold on. <laughs> one small step for man. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm totally, I'm totally ruining this. Hold on. <laughs> give, give me a sec. Uh, let's see. Well, I mean, first of all, the definitely one of the great lines is. Uh, tranquility base here the eagle has landed and you can see that in the apollo 11 patch with the eagle landing on the surface of the moon all right all right i found it the famous quote which i totally forgot (laughs) that's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind the the joking aside it's it's really, I'm, I mean, given the time, given the era, given what was going on at the time, they pushed through and they did something that I would be shocked to find anybody of that generation who doesn't know this. You know, if they didn't, then they probably, you know, weren't, weren't living in a regular place. You know, I, everyone knew about the men that walked on the moon. We, we beat the Russians to it, you know. Um, it's an incredible day for America, and 46 years later, I'm still just as shocked. I mean, it's longer than, uh, it's almost longer than twice my lifetime. So <laughs> I wasn't even there, but I can still, I, I can still be so proud that this has, ha- this has happened, that we've done this, and it's actually... You know, if you think about it, 46 years to see where we are now, to see that we're trying to now push and get back to those glory days of of sending people into space, which is really a part of this episode, which is human spaceflight. You know, robots, um, definitely in this time more than other, will get more attention than they've ever gotten or ever would have gotten in the past. Um, Curiosity, the rover, um, right now, has almost 2 million followers, 1.97 million followers. It's a robot on the surface of Mars. But it still pales in comparison to how people feel about space travel when there are humans involved. And that goes both ways. That goes to the pride and the and the feeling of accomplishment of something that uh, the men and women in the space program for America, I mean, take it from our, our perspective with NASA, there's great pride in that. But when something bad happens or when someone gets, you know, if you take the two shuttle disasters, um, you'd be hard-pressed to say that people didn't think that maybe we shouldn't do this anymore because we've lost lives, but the important thing is to realize that this didn't, this didn't just happen. It's not like, it's not like they just did this. It's not like a bunch of guys said, Hey, you know, you want to go to the moon? All right, let's go. No, they did that. They did that in response to Kennedy's charge to the nation to put people on the moon. That was the, and, and, and not even a decade later, they had accomplished that. And two missions later, they faced one of the biggest disasters they could have ever thought in Apollo 13. Well, they almost lost the lives of those, those crew members. But it's now, in retrospect, in history, noted as NASA's finest hour because they worked under pressure with the smartest minds that they had, with the, the minds they had. They don't even take the smartest minds in the world crap. I don't even know why I said that. They had the minds that they had. Well, the point I'm trying to make is the minds they had, they used, and they used them well. 
the best of their capabilities, and they accomplished what they needed to do. They were all faced with a new thing they had never, ever been faced with before. They had to think around the box. That, that movie and that event are part of the reason why I'm even talking to you today. Just the whole thing of working under that pressure and finding a solution, something that's not regular, that's, that's, that's original, and, and man, I mean, that gives, that gives me a thrill. I, that's why I, when I got into R&D, I was sold. Engineering, yes. Yes, please. May I have another? I love that. I love that. And with this human space flight, it's, it's an important date to remember. In four more years, we'll be at the 50th anniversary of that. In 2019, if you can believe it, that'll be 50 years since we stepped foot on another... Well, since the first time we stepped foot. I shouldn't say it's the last time. But... I'm proud to say, and I think you've heard from this episode, we have plans to go back to another body and set foot with humans. And we've got two agencies working on it. We've never had that before. So we're in good shape for this. To keep going and to keep pushing into the deep dark (laughs) of the solar system. And maybe one day we'll send someone to Pluto, but not now. Definitely not now. Now for the final piece in orbital news, the Expedition 45 crew members have not only launched, but have made it to the International Space Station and are now aboard with their other three crew members in the (laughs) flying scientific lab slash apartment we call the International Space Station, (laughs) traveling at more than 17,000 miles per hour around uh, the Earth, which is like five miles per second. You believe it. So NASA astronaut NASA, bleh, my mouth is just mush today. NASA astronaut Gel Lindgren, Oleg Kononenko of uh, the Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos, and Kamiya Yui of the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, joined the Expedition Forty Four crewmates as they hatch from their Soyuz TMA seventeen M spacecraft. Uh, and the International Space Station opened at 12.56 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Today, the day this podcast actually comes out, July 23rd. And it's, it's very cool because uh, Scott Kelly, who's been up there already for over 100 days, I don't actually have the count right now with me, but he will finally, after all that time, will finally have a roommate on the, uh, the U.S. side. Uh, he's been alone with, as he called himself, his uh, his ball-shaped friend Wilson uh, <laughs> in a picture the other day. So Scott Kelly will have a roommate with uh, Jell Lindgren. And Lindgren, Kononenko, and Yui will stay aboard the station until late December. Uh, Kelly and Kornienko, as you may have known, have been on since March 27th and will stay until uh, March 2016, because they're part of the one-year mission. Um, Padalka, who is holding the record for the longest time in space right now, uh, is going to be staying uh, and returning to Earth in September, which will then leave Scott Kelly in command of Expedition 45. Unfortunately, I missed the launch. Um, you could, you'll definitely find a, a video, a short video of it on uh, the website, so in in case you missed it, you can catch up on it. Uh, I actually was uh, in a hurry that day, was trying to find a space for it, and uh, maybe do a launch hangout. I had my recorder with me and everything. Uh, looked at, looked online real quick, saw someone said weather was postponed, didn't look, and then <laughs> next thing I know, uh, they're already launching <laughs> towards the ISS. So, it, But either way, um, congratulations to all of them for making it. Um, it's always stressful, uh, having people launch into space, but, you know, I mean, the Soyuz is a, is a tried and true craft, um, especially the, the TMA, the automated system that I've seen the last few launches, um, it's definitely new to this, uh, space launch game, so if I get anything wrong, please feel free to, uh, 
uh, and you have the right information, <laughs> feel free to send me an email and I'll give you props for the correction on anything in the show. And uh, it'll just make sure that we've got everything right. But yeah, congratulations to Expedition 44 for making it. Uh, now there are six members back again on the Flying Apartment Space Lab. And we wish them luck with all the science they have to do. And that just about does it for Orbital News this week. Okay, now, on to some news back on Earth. If you remember, the CRS-7 mission failed uh, after the Max-Q, the Max Dynamic Pressure, was very high up there, and there didn't really seem to be a reason for why it happened. Everyone was really shocked. Um, the cargo that was on board, all the scientific uh, data that was there, and cargo uh, was destroyed, unfortunately. Um, there, I, I heard through the grapevine there's a new provision being added on. I uh, could be wrong, but a new provision to have on the next Dragon capsule that will be sent up there a, um, an option to have the parachute released just in case something like this happens because apparently had they had that option on board, um, they could have saved some of the cargo, if not all of it. Um, so you live and you learn. Um, they'll be adding that in, from what I've heard. But more on why the accident actually happened. Um, Elon Musk, uh, the f- company's founder and chief executive, um, on Monday, um, said that it, it had to do with a two-foot steel strut that snapped inside its rocket, inside SpaceX's rocket. Um, they they believe that's what the issue was, and. Um, you know, they had they had flown, Elon said, they had flown these struts many times and had no problems. Um, but two minutes into the June 28th launch, one of the struts in that second stage of the unmanned Falcon 9 uh, broke, it probably broke loose. So with the strut, what it was doing was holding down a high-pressure helium bottle in the liquid oxygen cha- tank. And if that strut snapped as the engineers believe, then the bottle would have shot to the top of the tank at high speed and the rocket and the Dragon supply ship um, going to the International Space Station had no chance. Um, It's the... In all, this is the third uh, equipment loss, or shipment loss, I should say, of equipment uh, to the orbiting space apartment lab. Uh, in the last eight months. Uh, Russia started back their deliveries. SpaceX is uh, coming back. They're grounded still until they figure it out. And Orbital Sciences is still grounded as they try and figure out uh, what happened. Um, You know, Musk also said at the news conference that it's preliminary results. You know, uh, they... uh, Sorry, (laughs) I'm just reading and trying to talk at the same time. Not very good. Um, not very good at that. Uh, but yeah, so going back to what they said, the Dragon could have been saved, uh, didn't have the right software, but uh, they're working on that. So the parachutes happen. Um, and the other thing the, to keep in mind, this strut was supplied by a third party, um, not by SpaceX themselves. They have chosen not to say who the company is um, because they're doing good business and uh, there's no reason to... Um, there's no reason to, to, to cause a commotion because they, uh, in an article I had read a few days before this, um, they had tried out many different struts and none of them even came close to um, the forces that they needed to, to keep up. So, you know, they were designed to handle 10,000 pounds of force at liftoff. Um, at the time of the accident, they were probably only seeing 2,000 pounds of force. Um... Now, Musk says it's pretty crazy for that to happen, um, but if it were to fail anywhere, it would have been at that point that it's attached. So, um, they'll, be equipped, they'll be equipping the next cargo carrier with software for deploying the passengers so that if something like this happens, they can save the cargo, hopefully for the next mission. Because uh, the estimated loss of uh, NASA equipment and supplies for this mission, not the other two, but just this mission was 110 million. So, putting parachutes that, uh, putting parachutes and the program 
software needed to, to release those uh, will be a much needed add-on in the next mission. So, um, you know, the only other thing to take in mind, uh, you know, with the struts, if, you know, if people are going to blame SpaceX on this one, I hate to say it, but the way it seems things seem, um, doesn't really look like there's something that could be pointed at SpaceX. They, they don't make the struts. They bought from someone who makes struts. And unfortunately, that company's strut didn't work. So, um, you know, that's there are plenty of companies who don't even make as many things as SpaceX makes in-house. I was amazed to hear they don't even make the struts. Um, but everything that they've made has performed admirably. Um, and still, even with this report, nobody really knows why it happened. So the best guess we have is that, that the strut let go. Um, just wanted to bring you guys up because I was thinking about it last week. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the internet gods gave me what I was looking for. Uh, <laughs> Elon Musk uh, came on that Monday. Uh, and it was, it's, it's good to hear from him. Um, you know, he's definitely one of the more vocal business owners that, uh, you see out there and, uh, always comes out and gives it to you straight. So very much appreciate that. Uh, good luck to SpaceX on, um, and, and their workforce because it's their, it's their first failure, um, since they've really started these commercial flights and even with their other satellites, I, I don't think they've lost one yet. And, uh, it'll be a true test of their workforce and their morale and how that company operates. Um, I I have faith in them. Um, I have faith in Elon Musk. Um, so if any company could get out of this, it's definitely them. Um, but they're definitely <laughs> they're definitely in first place as far as successful mission goes, even with this last one failing. So I'm very much looking forward to their next attempt. And super excited for things to come. Commercial crew, go! And that about does it for the news on Earth. So to close out and to finish the episode, you know, this whole episode was about human spaceflight and how we can actually make that possible. How can we... Why aren't we doing it? And, you know, we touched on some things that are actually happening today in space. (laughs) Things that are happening today that could very well set up what we could be seeing in the next 10, 20, 50 years. You know, we could really see, if things come together just right, we could really, I mean, we've all seen how far technology has driven on Earth in the last 10 years because of consumer demand. You know, because people wanted it, they were making it, they were selling it, and it, it, it got to everybody, and then people were innovating and making new things. If if somehow this commercial crew program can do that, and not only us as the United States are doing it, but the European Space Agency is doing it with the, the entirety of the EU working and, and developing, and if, if they're working on moon, uh, a moon village, right, and working on those technologies, developing them, and we're working on landing on Mars, and we come together and we work on these things, I, I don't I don't see why we can't do it. You know, and there's plenty of minds, people that are listening today to the show. There is going to be, once we get into space, the, the job market, think about it this way, and this is my opinion. I really don't have anything to back this. It's just a gut feeling. But it, it, it logically, it, to me, it makes it makes sense. If we can really get into space and we can really start working towards humans living, and I'm not just saying like on the International Space Station where they are living, they are alive in space. I'm talking about living, like you and I at home, in an apartment, in the city, living your day-to-day life. Yeah, you'll probably take, you know, a few months off to go back to Earth, because it's probably healthy for you, but every single career that we have on Earth, I, I would be, su- I would like to have a discussion, <laughs> on what ones you can't have in space because I really I've I've thought about this a lot this was a lot of my college career spent thinking about the possibilities of space travel and where this industry can go and that's why I've hooked my horse into it 
because I don't think there's a limit. Now, I may not see it in my lifetime, but I'll definitely see it start. And if we've got people like me and you who are interested in this, talking about it and pushing the issue and making people pay attention, then it's going to go places. This Pluto mission is just a start to get people talking. If we can keep steamrolling this and SpaceX has another successful landing, and the ESA actually pushes through on that moon colony, the moon village, and this Mars mission goes off, and, and we really find an area where we can land, there's going to be some crazy shit, people. We're going to be going into space, and if that EM drive gets going, if that EM drive really kicks off, woo, we're talking about manufacturing in space. We're talking about a whole different era that's not even close to when we step foot on the moon. Better even. But we've got to try. That's the most important thing to take away from this episode. We have to try. And as I step down from my soapbox <laughs> from today, uh, I just want to say thank you uh, to everyone who's been listening, uh, everyone who's, who's subscribed, listened to the song, purchased the song. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed doing this every week for you guys. There's more and more to come. We'll be having a... Uh, a one-year-in-space mission update. I've got some uh, friends who are geneticists. Uh, there's a genetic counselor. We'll see if we can get him on, too, so you can find out more about what kind of jobs you can do in space and just in science in general. You know, I've got all these engineering friends, and you'll probably never hear from them unless they do something like I did and, and start a show. So I want to introduce you to them so you know what possibilities are out there for you in science. And just keep you in the know on what's going on in space. This is Alexander Giorfanos, El Greco, if you will, wishing you a fantastic week. Please spread the love, spread science. See you all next week, Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm out.